0: Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. I've got the pleasure to be seated across from Greg Dimas from uh, Baidu, and he's a senior researcher there. Greg, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Awesome. Uh, Why don't we get started by having you tell us a little bit about
1: your background and how you got interested in ML and AI? Sure, absolutely. My background has traditionally been in high-performance computing. I've been really excited about building really fast processors for important applications that enable new applications that people can use. You know, it's actually kind of a strange story how I got to AI. I used to be an AI skeptic.
0: (laughs) Okay, That's always a good place to start.
1: Yeah. I always felt like AI would be valuable, but I just felt like there's no way that simple algorithms like stochastic gradient descent could ever solve these complex, you know, highly multi-dimensional optimization problems. Uh-huh. And then, at one point, I remember sitting at NVIDIA Research and hearing a talk uh, from Jan LeCun and just realizing, oh, I was wrong. I was totally wrong. <laughs> and Immediately after that, I joined Baidu Research. Uh, Andrew was founding the Silicon Valley AI Lab, and it seemed like a great opportunity to learn more about AI. And man, it's been such a crazy ride to get to this point. I bet. So what was your path to
0: get to that point that you even had an opinion that involves stochastic gradient descent?
1: Oh, sure. I mean, well, let's see. I like building things that are useful for people. Uh I feel like Computing in general has enabled many, you know, new capabilities like the internet yeah. and like videos and, <laughs> you know, so so many things that we take for granted every day, but right. really make our lives better. And I was always really passionate about making computers even better. Okay. It's kind of this belief that although you might not know it going into it, if you make a faster computer or more efficient computer, someone will find a way of building something amazing on top of that. Yeah. And... One of the th- and so I spent a lot of time looking at applications. What are the things that you can use computers to do? And AI was always there. okay. Just the feeling with AI has you know for me before deep learning was that it would just be too hard that um, a lot of existing theory was kind of steering you down and and had all of these really difficult challenges. Mm-hmm. And you know I'd seen a lot of people, very smart people, spend a lot of time trying to tackle those problems and uh, not quite getting all the way there. So, do you recall what was it about Jan's talk that
0: kind of made the light bulb go off and and made you realize that stochastic gradient descent was the the answer?
1: Sure. So, you can look at these hierarchical feature representations in convnets. Mm-hmm. Um, so, when people you know look at images, you can tell it's the world is hierarchical. You can break a chair down into pieces. It has arms and legs. You can break those pieces down, you know, recursively. And there's a lot of existing work that provides some evidence that vision algorithms will do similar things uh, for recognition tasks. That wasn't ever really uh, a question. um, And people were able to build by hand you know, uh, things like feature detectors and these hierarchical systems that worked reasonably well. They were just very difficult to build. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing about Jan's talk was that, you know, systems could do it automatically. Mm-hmm. I thought before that that you would get stuck in these, you know, intractable optimization problems where even if a solution exists, you know, it's one out of some enormously large number like you know, 2 to the the power of 10 to the power of 30, like something amazingly (laughs) big. (laughs) Like, you know, you you think about different sizes of numbers. Sometimes I think of the number of atoms in the universe as being a big number. Mm -hmm. This is far, far bigger than that. And you were thinking that that
0: number represents represents what? How many things you'd have to
1: search through to find a good the search solution. space for your okay yeah it's like the needle in an enormous haystack more atoms yeah. than there are in the universe how could you ever possibly hope to search through it efficiently Wow and especially with these very simple algorithms mm-hmm. but you know reliably I've seen since then for one application after another for image recognition for speech recognition and for synthesis for language understanding it works very reliably
0: hmm did you happen to catch any of Jeff Hinton's talk uh, prior yes. to this? What do you think Capsules. about his uh, kind of post-SGD capsule? Well, it's not post-SGD. He actually, the starting point is that SGD is really the only thing that we know works, right? But it was it's more post kind of the traditional model of the neuron.
1: Yeah, I'd almost think of it as like post-covnets. Okay. And, you know... One thing we've realized recently is just there is a lot of complexity in modeling Mm -hmm. um, that while we like to think of deep learning as a general purpose learning algorithm, Mm -hmm. as you start applying it to different applications, like my experience has been uh, spending a lot of time applying it to speech recognition, Mm -hmm. and you do get some benefits from more data and from some general purpose aspects of the learning algorithm to the extent that it's robust to different speakers or different variations in different environments. But you also get a lot of benefits from specialization. Mm-hmm. So finding the right neural network architecture seems like it matters a lot. And as we look into details for different applications, as we spend time uh, tuning neural network architectures for different applications, you see very different structures emerge. Mm-hmm. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if there is a more efficient, uh, more general-purpose structure for vision than convnets. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, one of the really helped me uh, see that was a blog post by Stephen Merity a while ago. It may be almost a year ago at this point, but he talked about network architecture being the new feature engineering. Hinton's talk was post convnets, but he did start it off by talking about like calling into question the basic neuron structure. But I don't, he didn't necessarily. He did kind of pivot to talking about the network architecture at a a higher level, right? Do you, was there a piece in there where he suggested what might be the kind of successor to the traditional neuron architecture?
1: I think it's about this concept of capsules, which might be groups of cooperating neurons. Okay. And then the way that they cooperate together might be more more complex. Mm. Um, Let's see. I feel like from a computational perspective, it's actually hard to get away from the formulation of neurons that we have as the basic building block, where even if there is something that's algorithmically more efficient mm-hmm. or more well-matched to the problem, the computational building blocks that we have have been so highly tuned that if you made a very substantial change, it might be better kind of In at theory. the algorithm level, right? but it might be very inefficient on the type of computer that we know how to build today. It breaks this whole
0: ecosystem that we've built up around this traditional way of building neurons and networks and solving them.
1: Yeah, so much of the existing technologies are built on top of uh, hardware support and also algorithm support for linear algebra, like dense mm-hmm. linear algebra. It's actually kind of surprising to me how effective that's been given that the primitives are so old and that they're so simple. Mm-hmm. It's very surprising to me that those building blocks have gotten us as far as, as far as they have. Mm.
0: So we took a little a little digression, I guess before we got to
1: kind of what you're up to at Baidu sure so at Baidu, really, the Silicon Valley AI Lab is about building new breakthrough technologies in AI that uh, especially have connections or enable new products. Mm-hmm. We focus on things that you know we can't currently do today, and there are really multiple ways we end up attacking this. The thing that I focus a lot on is just the idea of scale, that as we have faster computers that can train larger, more complex neural networks, that it's not the only way, but that's a very reliable way of improving accuracy or enabling new capabilities. We've seen this in uh, vision to a large extent. It's actually kind of interesting. When we started uh, working in Baidu, there was a question whether you could apply this outside of vision. Mm-hmm. Uh, we spent a lot of time looking into speech recognition. I think looking back on that, it works very reliably. Like you can definitely apply deep learning outside of vision to many different applications. Mm-hmm. Sometimes now, instead of you know thinking what is the new application uh, that you can apply deep learning to, I sometimes wonder: Are there any applications that are not well-matched, that we won't be able to make significant progress on um, by just applying this simple recipe of deep architectures, large data sets, large-scale compute. Mm-hmm. I haven't found one yet. Nice. So we talked a little bit about, before we got started, we talked a little bit
0: about the fact that you worked with one of our previous guests, Shibo Sengupta, who was at Baidu and is now at Facebook. Is that right?
1: Yeah, he's uh, playing Dota. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> and he and
0: I spoke pretty extensively about the speech translation, the, uh, I forget the specific name of the project, but the Baidu speech. Uh, deep speech. The deep speech, right. And in the course of that conversation, we talked a little bit about you know some of the scalability challenges that your team ran into in tackling that problem. But here at this conference, you're talking about, you have a talk tomorrow, in fact, about some even further work
1: that you've done. Can you tell us about what you're planning to to talk about? Sure, definitely. So this is definitely along the lines of scaling deep neural networks. We pretty consistently find that if you throw more data at the problem, it isn't the only way, but it is a very effective way of reducing error rates and improving accuracy. And so... Oftentimes, when you keep throwing data at the problem, you eventually run into some limitation. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you run out of data, and sometimes you run out of patience to wait for your um, system to train. Mm. <laughs> um, I've had a there's, there's one example that I think drives drive this point home that we once had a model that ran. I let it run on a large cluster on about 64 GPUs for about six months. And wow. We were still getting improvements in accuracy at the time. I decided to, you know, pull the plug. <laughs> now, how are you? If you're, if you're still
0: running your training model for, oh, you were saying the kind of your
1: incremental error is decreasing as you ran it. Yeah, this was a state of the art model, so it's actually improving the state of the art as it okay. runs. Every minute, it's getting a little bit better than any model that we've had before. And then after six months, you really go back and look at that and say, well. I could let it run for another few years, but I'd like to use it now. (laughs) (laughs) So we're always looking for ways to improve speed. There's actually, you know, oh man, there's something that's related to that that I can't talk about yet. Um, (laughs) It's kind of a weird situation to sometimes be in where, Uh like, you know why something happens or you know that something will keep happening, but you can't talk about it. One of the things that I think I know is that For many applications, we will continue to see improvements in the state of the art from faster computers. I can't tell you why, but I'm pretty sure. Um, I'll tell you why soon. Okay. Is
0: this the... Are we talking about a theoretical result or a... Okay. Okay.
1: Yeah, I think so. You're nodding
0: yes for those who can't
1: see. <laughs> I'm nodding yes. Yeah, th- this is one of those things that's, that'll definitely be surprising to people when we can finally talk about it. But sorry, I can't talk about it today. Okay. But so you just have to take my word for it that we need faster computers. Okay. And the talk tomorrow is going to be about a way that we can make computers faster for deep learning. Okay. Um, yeah, I spent a lot of my time thinking about this like, what's the best that you could do? How fast could you possibly make a computer, even our understanding of physics and our existing technology? I think one thing the industry is realizing is that we spend a lot of time focusing on general purpose computation. So Mm -hmm. building computers to run Windows or Mm -hmm. your browser. But if you specialize, if you build a computer that's good at only a few things and not everything, Mm -hmm. you can do a lot better. So we're exploring right now, how do you build computers that are good at AI? They're mm-hmm. good at deep learning.
0: And is this different than uh, what others in the space are doing, like TPUs and things of that nature?
1: Let's see. So this is about a very specific technique. It might be one technology that might go into a chip like a GPU or a TPU. Okay. Right now, many of these designs are using a lot of the same technologies. Okay. Um, this is a new one, and this one has a pretty high upside this one has a maybe order of magnitude upside.
0: Okay, well before we dive into that, can we take a second to kind of characterize the thing that GPUs and TPUs are doing that's kind of gotten them the benefit and then we'll dive into you know, uh, this approach and what makes it different?
1: Sure, definitely. So let's see, I feel like one of the, well there are two, okay, there are a lot of differences. One thing that's worth keeping in mind is that modern processors incorporate probably thousands, probably even more uh, optimizations. Mm -hmm. So these are technologies that will improve their performance in some way. Mm -hmm. They might be circuit level, they might be architecture level, they might be in the software stack. It's very hard because real designs are composed of, you know, you pick out your favorite out of this pool of thousands of technologies and that becomes the new processor that you build, Mm -hmm. these distinctions like TPU, GPU, CPU, they're very high level and they gloss over all of those details. Okay. (laughs) So I think what's more important than the name is what it does. How fast is it actually? Mm -hmm. Like what is the result that you get from it? Mm -hmm. How fast does it run a model that you care about? Mm -hmm. We've seen things that were called CPUs being commonly used for training maybe 10 years ago. There was a transition where people started using GPUs. Right. The important thing about GPUs was optimization for uh, parallelism, mm-hmm. um, that there is abundant parallelism in neural network computations. Some of the things that are, you know, a few, like a couple out of that list of thousand things that are being added into the next generation are optimizations around locality and low precision, so the technology I'm going to talk about tomorrow is focused on low precision. Okay. And there's a big difference. When a lot of previous technologies have been uh, discussed or proposed for low precision, it's mostly been focused on inference and not training. Right. And this will be one of the first results and especially the, as far as I know, larger scale result that focuses on using low precision for training. Okay. I think the high level conclusion is it finally works. It was enormously difficult. Wow! You know, it was actually kind of a weird surprise that when you try doing uh, low precision for training versus inference, mm-hmm. we didn't really know that we would see this. Uh, we started looking into this, but it just turns out that for some reason inference is so much easier than training. Mm-hmm. That even you know very drastic reductions in precision, like moving from double precision down to, you know, even 8-bit or possibly even lower fixed point representations. Mm -hmm. It works just fine across many different models. But if you try and do the same thing for training, things fail. It's actually kind of a funny point to me that um, we kind of made this implicit transition. Uh, CPUs commonly support uh, high performance double precision. GPUs don't. GPUs have historically optimized around single precision. So 32-bit floating point instead of 64-bit floating point. It turns out it's kind of expensive to do this in a GPU, to do 64-bit in a GPU, Mm -hmm. whereas it's pretty cheap in a CPU because you don't have to replicate this this unit very many times. On a GPU, you have to replicate it a lot. So if you replicate something big a lot, it becomes expensive. Mm -hmm. It's kind of surprising that the whole industry... You know, we, when, when I started watching people uh, train deep neural networks, they might write scripts in, you know, MATLAB or, you know, call CPU libraries directly. And those things by default use double precision. Mm-hmm. When the industry switched to GPUs, they switched from double precision to single precision. And we got so lucky. Mm-hmm. It turns out that it didn't really matter. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that was just by luck. When we tried doing the next step, we tried moving from single precision to half precision. Mm-hmm. So moving from 32-bit uh, floating point to 16-bit floating point, things started failing all over the place. Mm. And
0: um, what caused those failures?
1: There were a lot of them. Let me try and draw a couple uh, big categories. One was just differences in range. So one of the uh, points of having floating point as opposed to fixed point is that you have a very large uh, dynamic range. You might, you know, be able to do an operation like an add of a number that's you know where one number is a billion and the other number is you know ten to the minus five, and that works. Right. And so you need your range to extend from the smallest numbers that you want to deal with to the biggest numbers that you want to deal with, and. It turns out that if you look at all of the operations that go on in forward propagation, back propagation, the nonlinearities in the SGD algorithm, there's actually a pretty large dynamic range.
0: Aren't we typically normalizing to try to get rid of
1: some of that? Yeah, it's interesting. I'll come back to that point. <laughs> okay. There's an interesting <laughs> thing related to that point. Yeah, let me come back to that. But I I feel like the number one reason why when we just, so the first experiments we did were just convert all of the 32-bit numbers to uh, 16-bit half-precision numbers and try using exactly the same algorithm. Mm -hmm. And also at Baidu, you know, because we were working on speech recognition, we started doing this for recurrent neural networks. Mm -hmm. It turns out that was one of the harder examples. We started with one of the, the harder cases, it turned out. And so we would see all sorts of failures.
0: And what, what makes RNNs particularly harder?
1: Uh, I think it has to do with accumulated errors. Okay. So as you keep doing this repeated application of a matrix multiplication with the same weights, mm-hmm. you're thinking about, or over time, this just encourages extreme values, either extremely small values or extremely large values. This is, Sometimes people call this the vanishing gradients or exploding right. gradients right. problems. and for speech recognition, we see very long time series. Okay. Um, we might see hundreds of uh, iterations of an RNN or maybe thousands. Mm-hmm. And we saw you know, large accumulated errors over time. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest uh, sources of errors we uh, came across was when you're actually combining uh, gradients with the gradient update with the master copy of the weights. So when you have this model, it turns out uh, it seems like SGD just makes these repeated small updates to a model mm-hmm. and so if you look at it from a range perspective, there's a large difference in magnitude between the magnitude of the gradients and the magnitude of the weights. And so when you try and do operations on those you know numbers that have very different magnitudes, um, you get loss of information or you get you get errors. and that was one of the biggest Uh, problems we had with training in half precision it seemed like yeah moving for some reason um the errors introduced from like the in floating point um things work out well if the numbers are in uh, different magnitudes but not by too much Mm -hmm. and so it turns out that the uh difference for single precision versus double precision was okay but it ended up being borderline for multiple applications when we were looking at the difference between single precision and half precision. Okay. So we had to introduce some changes in order to deal with that.
0: One of the questions that came up in this previous conversation with Shubo, in which we talked, we touched on some of this stuff, like I think pretty tangential, it was like the end of our conversation, I think, if I remember correctly. But we were talking about reduced precision and... I think I asked the question like. You can reduce the the precision in multiple places. You can reduce your the precision in your weights. You can reduce reduce the precision in your outputs like. When you're talking about reduced precision, are you talking it sounds like you're talking about reduced precision everywhere, just running on reduced precision infrastructure or in a reduced precision mode and not being particularly discriminating in terms of where you reduce the precision. Is that what you're referring to?
1: Yes. We're trying to keep it simple. Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We feel like if it ends up getting very complex, then it's a it's difficult for people to know how you would actually apply this to a real model.
0: Then you get back into your kind of architecture, feature engineering, complexity issues.
1: Yeah, we definitely didn't want to introduce this as another as another hyperparameter, or right. You know, maybe this only works for a few layers, but you know, it doesn't work in these places, and so okay. you can, you know, you have to make this hard choice of deciding which ones to convert, and which ones not. Okay. We wanted it just to be kind of like a switch, and you would you know turn on the switch, and you would get the performance improvement. Okay. And I think we finally got to that point. But for, you know, this, this kind of reason, there, there were a lot of problems along the way. Mm-hmm. So I mentioned the difference in magnitudes between uh, the updates and the weights as a source of errors. Mm-hmm. The other big one was just accumulated errors in long dot products. Um, so it turns out that taking weights, uh, convert, quantizing them to 16-bit, and then doing multiplications of activations with those weights didn't introduce too many errors but in neural networks especially in recurrent neural networks as layers get big you end up with these long dot products and so you're doing a running sum kind of like over each row or or all of the inputs of a neuron and each operation has an accumulated error so every one in the sequence is going to add some amount of error and now
0: we're not talking about error in the kind of machine learning modeling since We're yes. talking about floating point error.
1: Yeah, we're talking about just, you know, if you really wanted to do this multiply operation, you didn't get the exact result. We had to clamp it to a value that's representable by the computer. Right. And so each time you do that, you introduce quantization error. Mm-hmm. And normally, as long as you have enough bits, uh, the quantization error is small enough that it doesn't really affect the final result too much. Mm-hmm. Exactly what too much means is very application dependent. Mm-hmm. And into complex systems like neural networks, it's really hard to know how much error is too much error other than just trying it on a real application. Right. But we found for real applications, like for speech recognition or for translation, the error introduced by doing ads in 16-bit was too much error. Uh, okay. Models would diverge. Okay. Um, or models would achieve significantly worse Um, accuracy than the 32-bit baselines. And so we went back to that and we tried a whole bunch of things. Like we tried hierarchical reductions and a bunch of things that ended up just being complicated. Mm -hmm. And eventually we went back and looked at the circuits and came to the conclusion that it wasn't that expensive just to put in a 32-bit adder. So you have a bunch of 16-bit multipliers and then you have a few 32-bit adders. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the uh, performance improvement that you get from that, it ends up being most of the performance improvement that you would have got if you would have built 16-bit multipliers and 16-bit adders. Okay. So yeah, we ended up with a mixed precision format. You end up doing multiplication in, thir- in 16-bit, but then the addition in 32-bit. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of other things we ended up looking at. There's still some other failure cases, but those are really the two big things. As long as you keep the master copy of weights in 32 bit, and as long as you do all the additions in 32 bit, you can do all the multiplications and you can represent all of the activations and intermediate copies of weights and weight gradients mm-hmm. in 16 bit.
0: Just to, to take a step back and make sure I understand why we're doing this, are we talking about performance and computational costs? Are we talking about kind of unit compute costs for this chip by having, you know, narrower, you know, buses and things like that? Are we talking about training time performance? Like what are the the factors that are driving us to say we want to, we want to do this in, not just we can do it in reduced precision. We want to do this in reduced precision.
1: Sure. Yeah. Why do we want to do this in reduced precision? It's really so we can build more efficient hardware with and without this technique, you can just do a comparison. If you're building the same processor with and without this technique, there's a fair amount of performance at play. It might be something like 4 to 8x difference in really both sides of it, total performance or energy per operation, which would translate into efficiency.
0: Okay. So by going to reduce performance, we can, or by going to reduce precision, we can increase you know, some Composite of performance and energy consumption by four to eight X, like nearly order order of magnitude.
1: Yeah, we could finish my six month model in maybe just a single month. Mm-hmm.
0: And is it, I guess I'm trying to get at this this question. I don't know if the question makes sense, but like is it the is it something inherent about the lower precision or is it the fact that the lower precision allows us to use new compute architectures that are faster in other ways, or?
1: Oh, sure. Definitely. So do you get this performance improvement on existing computers? You get some performance improvement because you're moving around less data, but it might be closer to 2x. It really depends on whether you're compute bound or bandwidth bound, but the okay. maximum might be more like 2x. But if you build another computer. Okay. Okay if you built a new processor that was optimized around this idea, you could do even better. You could realize the 4 to 8x.
0: Okay. So low precision fundamentally allows you to do, kind of train these neural nets by moving around less data, right? 16 bits instead of 64, for example. So you get some advantage in doing that, even if you're just in low precision mode on a general purpose computer. But it also allows you to build chips that are specific to running in low precision and that gives you that's where you get the big opportunity to bump up your speeds.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Okay. And so you were here talking about the actual chip, is that correct?
1: Oh yeah, so we're going to talk about uh the Volta GPU from Nvidia. This okay. is a Yeah, this was a collaboration with Nvidia. It's worth noting, you know, this hardware has been shipping for a while. Right. But the side of it that we're talking about now is the validation that we've done on it. So we've actually okay. shown that you can train models in low precision. We've looked at you know over 15 large-scale, complete, end-to-end deporting applications. So it's really easy to build hardware that gets great performance numbers, but isn't able to run any real algorithms. So from the point of view
0: of low, of low precision, the Volta is like its general purpose, right? It's not... Uh, chip that's specifically designed for low precision.
1: Oh, it did actually have... They're called tensor cores. Um, The name for them is a tensor core. That is this operation I'm talking about. Okay. It's a specialized unit that does 16-bit multiplication floating point with 32-bit floating point addition. That unit was designed as a result of this study. Got it, got it.
0: And now... If I remember correctly, when this was announced, they made a big deal about not the floating point side of things, but like innate performance and things like that. How does that all fit in?
1: Sure. Definitely. So I kind of alluded to this maybe in the beginning that inference just is easier for some reason than
0: training. So that's all the inference. That's like we can do innate on inference side and it is easy and it just works and it's faster.
1: Exactly. Got it. Okay. I don't know. I, I don't know that this whole topic has been really fully explored yet. Uh-huh. Maybe someday in the future we might see someone who gets in date training to work. But as far as I know, I've I've never seen it. I know there are a lot of uh, there's a lot of work on you know very reduced precision, like even down to binary. Mm-hmm. But one thing that's worth noting about these approaches is that they either have accuracy losses. Um, so you trade precision for accuracy on the complete application or uh, they only apply to inference and not to training. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay. Got it. So reduced precision, you did some, some validation that shows that essentially running in this mode is kind of a generalized approach you can take. Now, you know, things that you need to do or uh, switches that you need to flip when you're training your model in order
1: to get it to work accurately uh, or to work uh, correctly? Sure, so one switch that you need to flip is you need to decide to do this. Okay. You need to decide to represent things in uh, 16-bit and do your matrix multiplications or convolution operations in this mixed 16-bit, 32-bit format. Mm -hmm. That's somewhat of a global switch. You can just turn that on for the entire program. Okay. The other thing that you need to do that we found is essential is you need a master copy of the weights. Mm -hmm. So in your optimization algorithm, like your implementation of SGD, you need to have a separate copy in 32-bit of all the weights. Mm -hmm. And only when you're doing uh, forward propagation or back propagation do you convert from that into 16-bit. Okay. But both of those changes we found. So the first one's really easy. The second one can be encapsulated inside of the optimization algorithm. So at least when you're designing a network, you don't have to think about this. Okay.
0: You know, I can envision how I might do this if I was writing the, you know, if I was implementing SGD myself, do the the higher level frameworks and toolkits all know how to do this? Or is that, you know, yet forthcoming?
1: So it's straightforward to do this in most frameworks, but there needs to be developers who are working on those frameworks who will actually add support for this. Okay. You know, when we did this in the framework that we have in Baidu, it's something like a, you know, 15 lines of code change. Yeah. So it's really minor, but you still have to do that. Right. Otherwise, you won't get access to the improved performance. Right. Okay. Anything else you
0: talked about in your or I keep saying it in past tense. Anything else you're going to talk about in your talk
1: that you want to mention? I guess the last thing is that this is one piece. This is one technology that gives us a large improvement in performance. Mm-hmm. I think we're aware of a lot of them that haven't been realized yet. Mm. So, you know, I mentioned before the hardware industry for a long time has been kind of creeping along. It's actually very difficult to realize large improvements in sequential performance, mm-hmm. at least for parallel programs like uh, graphics applications and things that would run on GPUs. Mm-hmm. Performance has been increasing You know, following something like the popular form of Moore's Law, so exponential growth. Mm-hmm. For AI, uh, if you're only thinking about running deep neural networks, you can probably do a lot better than that in the short term. Mm-hmm. So we might not have to wait 10 years to get a thousand X faster. It might happen in just a few years. I'm going to mention some of the other ways that haven't been implemented yet, but that we know about and are likely to happen in the future.
0: Can you rattle those off? This podcast will not be published before your talk
1: tomorrow. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) One of them is array parallelism. I think this is one of the other big ones is array parallelism. So I had a Forbes article about this where I was talking about locality, the importance of locality. If you build... Uh, processors around the idea of locality and parallelism, not just parallelism, Mm -hmm. you end up with something that it looks, I call it like an array processor rather than a vector processor. So you're you're thinking about the core instruction that you're doing instead of adding or multiplying two vectors together, you're adding or multiplying two arrays together. Mm. So you see things like this in designs like the TPU. I feel like the thing that is wrong with those designs is that they don't find the knee of the curve, that... This is beneficial, but you don't have to go all in on it to get mm-hmm. most of the benefits. And you actually are trading off.
0: So you don't find the knee of the curve. What exactly does that mean?
1: It means working on arrays is a good idea, but they don't have to be enormous arrays. Okay. And you actually are trading off flexibility for performance when you're making the arrays bigger. So you shouldn't make them enormous. You should make them big enough to get most of the savings and energy.
0: In terms of order of magnitude, are we talking about like little teeny ones, like convolutional kernel sizes, or are we talking about, you know, something bigger than that, or?
1: Yeah, it's like more like 16 by 16 than 256 by 256, if that makes sense. Okay, yeah, yeah.
0: Interesting. Any others on that list that uh, come to mind?
1: One of the ones that doesn't work yet, but I think is very promising, is uh, sparsity. Okay working with sparse representations rather than dense representations. And it might seem like that's incompatible with the one that I just said, the array parallelism. Mm -hmm. We haven't shown this yet, but I suspect that they're not incompatible.
0: Well, what I'm hearing putting the two together is that, you know, we're living in a world that thinks about all this stuff as composite vector operations. And by thinking about this at the level of matrices, you know, there are opportunities there.
1: Yes. Yeah. That's a good way of thinking about it.
0: Interesting. Well, I really enjoyed this chat. Thank you so much for taking the time. Glad to be here. Great. Thanks, Craig. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for your continued feedback and support. Thanks to you. This podcast finished the year as a top 40 technology podcast on Apple Podcasts. My producer says that one of his goals this year is to crack the top 10. And to do that, we will need your help. Please head on over to the podcast app, rate the show. Hopefully we've earned your five stars. Leave us a glowing review and share it with your friends, family, coworkers, Starbucks baristas, Uber drivers, everyone. Every review and rating goes a long way. So thanks in advance. For more information on Greg or any of the topics covered in this episode, head on over to twiml.ai.com slash talk 97. Of course, we'd be delighted to hear from you either via a comment on the show notes page or via Twitter at at Twimla.ai. Thanks once again for listening and catch you next time.